Well, good morning. My name is Jeffrey Samplaski. I am the student pastor here at Great Hills. I'm excited to have the privilege of standing before you today and opening the word with you. Um, I do wish that it was under better circumstances, as Terry told you a little while ago, about um, just kind of the, the difficulty that Pastor Danny is, is walking through this morning. Um, so I'd like to, to start just by taking a quick moment to, to go to the Lord in prayer and, and plead this morning that, that God would speak, that his word would go forth. We're also just going to take a second to pray for our pastor. So if you'll join me, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, mighty God of the universe, the creator, the sustainer of all things, the God who came and wrapped in flesh and died on our behalf. Father, because Hebrews 4.16 says that we can approach your throne with confidence, God, we do that. And God, we ask this morning, uh, God, just a special blessing on our pastor and his family. Father, that is your anointed. That's the man that you have called as the under-shepherd of this church. God, thank you for him. God, he is such a blessing to this church. He's a blessing to the body of Christ. And Father, I do ask now, as God, your word refers to you as Jehovah Shalom. You're the God of peace. I pray that you would give such an unbelievable peace to that family. God, I pray that you would give them so much peace that, that God, that they would look back on the circumstance and marvel at the fact that you were there and that you were working all along. Father, I pray that you would even use this God, hard circumstance for your glory. And God, now as we get ready to open your word, Father, I recognize that there is nothing by my own authority, no, no, no words, no intellect, no anything that would come out of my mouth that has the authority and the power to save, which is, God, why we are so desperate for you to speak. Father, your word has all the authority and all the power. So God, my prayer this morning is that you would remove me from the picture. God, and that your word, your truth would go forth because you promise that when your word goes forth, it never returns void. God, we love you. We are desperate for you to speak. And it's in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, I just want to take a quick moment to welcome our guests so excited to have you here. It is our great joy. In fact, it is our privilege to have you joining us for worship this morning. Um, I can't stress that enough. We're excited that you're here. Um, and, and this morning, we're going to, we're for obvious reasons, going to go a little bit of a different direction than, than what we were originally going to had, had Pastor Danny been standing here today. Um, I was blown away just a minute ago as the worship team sang that third and final song for the day. And Terry could probably attest to this, came up to me and kind of shared with me just a little bit about the order for the day. And I almost broke down in tears um, because there's a, a message, a sermon that, that God has put on my heart that's been honestly just kind of burning a hole in my heart, uh, just waiting for the day that God would, would allow me to, to preach this word. We sing about it. Holy, holy, holy 
Such an amazing thing that, that God would so orchestrate things for this morning that not only would we open the word today to sing about or to, to, to preach and talk about the holiness of God, but yet we would sing his praise, his glory, his holiness back to him. Call that chance. I call it the sovereignty of God. So church, I am excited about the opportunity to open the word with you today. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and go to a very familiar passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 6. And as I mentioned today, we're going to talk about a subject that, that is near and dear to my heart, the holiness of God. It's a, it's a subject that while I was in seminary, I was tasked with, with writing a, a research paper on this particular subject, on, on God's holiness, specifically out of Isaiah chapter 6. It was the only paper that I wrote while I was in seminary that quite literally put me on my face in tears before the Lord. Number one, because I realized real quickly that as I studied and as I wrote, I quickly realized that there's no way in, in one paper or in a thousand volumes of books that could be written and have been written on this subject, there's no way that we can fully capture all that is God's holiness. But then as I wrote, when I came face to face with God's holiness that day, God put me on my face as I realized he is holy and I'm not. I've, scripture tells us that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And that was such a humbling experience where God drew me to a place of repentance before him. Repenting of things that, that uh, honestly I hadn't thought of in years. But then as I approached him, God began to real, reveal to me his graciousness in a way that I've never seen before. He's holy. We're not. He is gracious. He's an amazing, loving God. And today we've got the privilege of talking about that holiness. In fact, I am convinced, absolutely convinced to my core, that as we, if we as a church take this particular attribute seriously, it will revolutionize this church. It'll revolutionize the way that we approach God. It'll revolutionize every aspect of our lives. If we recognize the holiness of God for what it is, it'll change everything. Students, I love you guys. As you live out your lives in a, in a sinful world, as you go to school, you go to school and you're surrounded by the effects of a fallen world every single day. Students, if you take the holiness of God seriously, it changes everything, despite the fact that we live in a sinful world. When we take the holiness of God seriously, it reminds us of how great and how big our God is. It reminds us of how much we need him. And it reminds us of the unbelievable, immeasurable love of our great God. Our God is holy. Again, I'm so privileged to have the privilege, the, the opportunity to open the word with you today. Church, this book, as we get ready to read, as I was praying just a minute ago, I recognized that there is nothing that could come out of my mouth by my own authority that has the power to save. But church, this book, I love this book. This book is so precious, church. Why? 
because this is the very voice of God. I want you to take a second just to recognize that truth that as we get ready to read, it's not my words that are going forth, but as we read, this is God. This is God speaking. Think about that. This is the God that spoke and the universe came pouring out. This is the same God that scripture says holds the universe in the palm of his hand. He's the creator, the sustainer of all things. This is the same God that though we live in a sinful and dead world, this is the same God that had a plan. His name is Jesus. As we read this word, recognize that this is the voice of God. So church, with all that being said, in humility and reverence, let me invite you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. This is Isaiah chapter 6. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook and the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And he said, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim, this is unbelievable. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and, the, and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. This is beautiful. The holy seed is in the stump. You may be seated. Church, this passage is unbelievable. When we read this passage, one of the things that you'll notice is that as we recognize the, the grandeur and the glory, the holiness of our God, the only response is to worship him. The only response is to recognize how, how broken and, and flawed we are and to worship God for how great and how unbroken and how holy he is. This is an amazing passage that was written in the midst of unbelievable difficulty. You know, I found it funny that not funny, kind of interesting, that oftentimes if, if you ask people, and I've put this to the test a time or two, 
If you ask people, well, if, if you could describe God in one word, what would that one word be? And a lot of the time you'll get a, just a kind of a barrage of different answers. God is love, God is mercy, God is gracious. Sometimes you'll even get the God is just, God is mighty, God is, and just the list goes on and on using words to describe who God is. And those are absolutely accurate. Please don't hear me say anything that I'm not. However, before anything else, God is holy. He's holy in all that he is. He's holy in all that he does. And he's holy in all that he will do. Now, the, the, the beauty of it is, is God's holiness, this particular attribute, overarches all of the rest of his attributes, his characteristics. So God's love is holy love. God's mercy is holy mercy. His justice is holy justice. And the list goes on and on and on. But God, before anything else, is holy in all that he is, all that he says, and all that he does. And church, this should bring us so much hope. Like I said, this passage was written in the midst of unbelievable difficulties. Written in the midst of just a, a dire circumstance. You see, in this passage, we're introduced to Isaiah, who was a prophet, somebody that spoke for God. We're also introduced to somebody, a king by the name of, of Uzziah. King Uzziah sat on the throne of the southern kingdom of Judah, 740 BC. He reigned for 52 years in Judah. That would be, give or take, that would be the equivalent of reigning all the, time, all the way back from John F. Kennedy all the way to present day. He sat on his throne for a long time. He was a good king. King Uzziah was a, a wise king. He was a king that people trusted for their, their economic provisions, prosperity. He, he was trusted for uh, security, that, that he would look after his people, take care of his people. I've read in one commentary that he was the best king that this area of the world had ever seen other than King Solomon himself. He was a great king. But there was a problem in the midst of King Uzziah's reign. There was an army that began to rise up, the Assyrian army. And this army was powerful. They were on a mission. And Uzziah was right in the middle of it. But then all of a sudden, something bad happened. As if the problems weren't bad enough, there was something bad that happened. Uzziah, sitting on his throne for 52 years, reigning in an amazing way, leading his people in an amazing way. That kingdom in the north begins to rise up. And then all of a sudden, King Uzziah dies. I want you to imagine just for a second with me what that must have looked like. Isaiah, the prophet who speaks for God, standing in this throne room, King Uzziah, a king who is mighty, who's wise, who's strong, seated on his throne. These people find their security in him. They know that they're protected because of this great king that's seated on the throne. So at one minute, they're looking at a very occupied throne, and then the next minute, they're looking at an empty throne. Imagine what that must have looked like for Isaiah that particular day. 
occupied throne, empty throne. Knowing that there was an army who was on a campaign to destroy areas of the world. Imagine the chaos that must have ensued with that. And then all of a sudden, God intervenes. And he does something that's unbelievable. God gives Isaiah, this prophet, a vision of the throne room of God. He allows Isaiah to see just the grandeur in this throne room, the the brilliance, the beauty in this throne room. So now things change. Isaiah, who was once looking at a very empty throne where an earthly king reigned for 52 years. Now he's looking at this empty throne in the next moment. Now he's looking at an occupied throne. He's looking at a throne who is, that is occupied by a God who knows no bounds. He's looking at a throne whose ruler has reigned before the foundations of the earth. Isaiah's looking at a throne whose occupant needs nothing because he has everything. He's looking at a throne whose occupant is rivaled by no one. He's looking at an occupied throne that is occupied by the God of the universe. And Isaiah begins to give us this unbelievable description of the throne room of God. And I want you to take a second to just kind of listen to the amazing descriptions that are in this passage. Notice that Isaiah uses very descriptive words to describe God. He was like this, he's like that. But it's like, God, it's like Isaiah couldn't find the right words to capture all that is the one who is seated on the throne. It's amazing. But church, in this passage, we see that we have an infinitely holy, infinitely glorious God. Notice that as, as Isaiah uh, starts describing God, using these very descriptive words, Isaiah goes into this interesting progression where he moves from describing God to starting to describe the things that are going on around God. And he begins to describe these interesting characters that are flying around the throne of God called seraphs. The original language, this word seraph means the burning ones. These burning ones are around the throne of God. And they've got a job. Well, let me describe these burning ones real quick. These burning ones around the throne of God are some interesting creatures from the description that we have in Isaiah. We see that they've got three sets of wings. So one that they, they cover their eyes because they can't gaze on the beauty and the grandeur of the one that's seated on the throne. With another, they cover their feet as a sign of respect because of the authority of the one that's seated on the throne. And with the other set, they fly because I, I assume that's what angels do. But you've got these interesting seraph, these interesting creatures that are flying, they're around the throne of God and their job is simply to speak the holiness of God. 
Notice what they say. Holy, 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 holy. When you go to bed at night, they are still there speaking the holiness of God. Again and again and again, before you were even thought of, before I was even uh, a, a thought, they were speaking the holiness of God. When our time in this world comes to an end, they will still be speaking this holiness. He is holy, holy, holy. Notice that there's not another word that's there, but it's holy. That's very intentional. God is holy, holy, holy. Again, notice that their entire job is to speak God's holiness. But take a second and notice that these words, the, Isaiah 6 uses the word holy in a really interesting pattern. He uses it three times, three, three words consecutively. He's, it doesn't say that he's holy. It doesn't say that he's holy, holy. But it says that he's holy, holy, holy. That's incredibly significant. When you see a word that's repeated back to back consecutively like that in scripture, it's driving emphasis into that word. It's saying that this word is, it's, it's a huge word. Unbelievably significant word. If you read through scripture, you won't find another word that's repeated in this three times fashion other than the word holiness. When you see it repeated three times, what we're seeing is that this word means that God is absolutely perfect in his holiness. There is not one, nor will there ever be one, who is holier than this three times holy God. That would be my, like me standing up on the stage right here and saying, that's a big hole. If there was a big hole on the stage and I walked up to the students and said, that's a really big hole, they would look at it and probably think nothing of it, maybe jump over it, have some fun. But if I said that's a big, big hole, suddenly parents are starting to grab their kids and saying, that's a pretty big hole, let's stay away from it. However, if I were to walk up and say, that's a big, big, big hole, then everybody in the room would automatically recognize that there is not a hole in, on the planet, nor will there ever be that's bigger than that one. That's kind of an interesting analogy, but you see where I'm going with this. There will never be one that is holier than our God, nor has there ever been. He is holy, holy, holy. What does that mean? It means that God is a cut above. It means that he is holy other. He is absolutely morally perfect. There is not a flaw in him, nor will there ever be. God is not just on another playing field from us. He's in another universe on a different playing field than we are. He is holy, holy, holy. He is absolutely holy. And church, again, I'm convinced that if we take this attribute of God's seriously, it'll change everything. Point number two, we are a sinfully lost people. I want you to take a, a second to notice Isaiah 6, verse 5. Res Isaiah's response to the amazing scene that he's seeing unfold around him 
It says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, take a second to notice the interesting progression that's going on in this passage. Isaiah begins, when he is given this incredible vision, Isaiah begins to describe God and then the things that are going on around God. And then after that, he begins to describe himself. And he begins to see himself and the only result of seeing what he saw, the greatness, the grandeur, the holiness of God, the only response is to fall on his face and say, woe is me for I am ruined. What Isaiah was doing is he saw himself in comparison to the holy, holy, holy God who is seated on his throne. And as a result, he recognized the depth of his sin in comparison to the one seated on the throne. When Isaiah said, woe is me, this isn't exactly a term that we use or a phrase that we use real often anymore. But when a prophet or somebody would cry out, woe is me, to put it in terms maybe make it a little bit easier for us to understand. What Isaiah was saying when he cried out, woe is me, he was saying, cursed is me. Death to me, because I am unho- I'm not holy. I'm flawed. I'm broken. I see the depravity of my own heart in comparison to the greatness of our holy God. So he's calling down a curse on himself. That's such a harsh response. See, Isaiah being a prophet, you would think this this man is holy. He's a man that's set apart. He's, He's chosen by God to be a mouthpiece for God. You would think this man is holy in comparison to everybody else. How often do we do that, church? Where we look at ourselves and we say, compared to that guy, I'm not that bad. My sin's not that bad. Did you see him? man, maybe I'll have a better standing before God in comparison to everybody else. But there's a huge problem with that. First of all, it's not biblical. Second of all, our salvation and our standing with God is not based on our comparison to other people. Our standing with God is based on our comparison to God. So Isaiah, this man who was set apart by God, called by God, recognizes that as he stands in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God, then he begins to see the depravity of his own heart. That he's broken, that he's flawed. And as a result, you get this harsh statement, woe is me for I am ruined. Some versions say, woe is me, for I am lost. Sometimes I have a a little bit of a hard time when I think about that thought of just how broken I am in comparison to the holy God. I'll be the first to admit, sometimes out of the pride of my own heart, I do a lot of repenting of this at times. Or I maybe compare myself to others and say, man, I'm not that bad. My, maybe my sin is not that bad. 
However, again, according to Scripture, yes, it is. God took me to another passage of Scripture several years ago. In fact, we're preaching through this, um, this, this book in both the college ministry and the student ministry in Ephesians. God took me to Ephesians chapter 2 several years ago to absolutely rip that pride out of my heart. And I want you to listen to the weight of this passage. As you consider the weight and the depth of our sin in comparison to the holiness and the greatness of our God. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The first time I read that, my pride swelled up in me, and I thought, Paul, how dare you say that about me? I'm not that bad. The problem is that according to Scripture, in, com- in comparison to the holy God. I'm not just sick because of sin, I'm dead because of sin. What scripture says here is that uh, according to his word, my sin means that my sin means that I'm an object of God's wrath. Friends, I say this in love. I say this because I love you. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, Scripture tells us that Jesus is the only means of salvation. There is no other way to God. There is no other way to be made right with God but Jesus. Friends, again, I tell you that if you're here and you don't know Jesus, because of your sin, you're, you're still an object of God's wrath. Church, that crushes me. That crushes me as I recognize that there's people seated in this room. There's people in my own family that because of their sin, because of their choice to rebel against the holy God, that they're an object of, the, of God's wrath. In church, it doesn't have to be so. Listen to Ephesians, verse 4. Point number 3, before I read that. We have an awesomely merciful Savior. We have an awesomely merciful Savior. Ephesians 2, verse 4. Remember what we read in the first three verses and the weight of the first three verses. That we were by nature objects of God's wrath. That we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Now listen to verse 4. This is unbelievable. This is beautiful. Verse 4 says, but God. But God, comma. Those are my two favorite words in scripture. But God. Recognize that because of those two words, we see God intervening despite our sin and the depravity in our hearts. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. But God. Church, it's such a beautiful truth that despite us, Despite our sin, we've got a God who's rich in mercy because of his great love. He intervened on our behalf. He bore our sin on the cross. He absorbed the fullness of God's wrath and went to the place that you and I should have been. He died the death. Church, hear me say this. He he died the death that we should have died. He drank the fullness of God's wrath all the way down to the dreg. Not a drop left. He drank it all on our behalf. That wrath was due us because of our sin. But God. And as we go back to Isaiah chapter 6, you see something very similar happening there. Again, kind of a peculiar passage. Isaiah describes God Then from there, he describes the things around God. And then from there, he says, woe is me. As a response to that, woe is me, for I am ruined. Listen to what happens next. Starting in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Essentially what God was saying is God looks at a guilty sinner in Isaiah and he responds, you're innocent. Now I don't fully understand everything that's going on. We can get technical about it, but I don't fully understand everything that's going on here. But what you do see is that God made a way. God made a way for Isaiah to be forgiven. It's a very painful way. But he provided a way for Isaiah to be forgiven. I love this. God's response to Isaiah's depravity is mercy. It's the same thing that we see in Ephesians chapter chapter 2 verse 4. We're dead in our sins, separated from the holy God. Not because God can't be in the presence of sin, but because God won't be in the presence of sin. Because he won't allow sin to defile his presence. Therefore, if we don't have somebody standing in the gap on our behalf, we too are objects of God's wrath. However, but God. God intervened by way of the cross of Jesus Christ. He went to the cross, as I said a minute ago. Scripture says that He became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. He went to the cross becoming our sin. Church, recognize that this is God we're talking about. Jesus is holy, holy, holy. Because he is God. But yet God loved us so much that he intervened on our behalf by way of the cross. When he went to the cross, 
He died in our place. The substitutionary death. So that whoever would come to him can be made right with God. Church, this is such an unbelievable truth. That despite our sin, Scripture says when we confess our sins to God, He takes them away. He gives us His righteousness. Recognize that for a minute. That our God loved us so much that He made a way. That even when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, when we confess those trespasses and sins to our God, he gives us our righteousness. So when God looks at us, he sees Jesus and says, they're holy. Therefore, because of Jesus, we're in right standing with the holy God. Church, you are loved. I've had this sense in my heart over the past several weeks that I've needed to share that. Church, you are loved. There may be somebody here that's walking through just an unbelievable difficulty in life. You are loved. Yes, I love you. But there's a love so much greater that supersedes mine. You have a God who is, who is madly in love with you. So much so that he would make a way for you to be reunited with him by way of the cross. So then Isaiah, and I'll close with this, Isaiah responds to God. In just an unbelievable way, He says, who, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. Isaiah responds to God after seeing this unbelievable event that's unfolding around him. God's holiness, the incredible, beautiful scene that's going on around the throne of God. Then he sees his own depravity. He sees God make a way for him to be forgiven and made right with God. And the only response from Isaiah from there is to go. Believer, if you're here and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are not in some type of training stage in your life where you're training for some future version of you before you go and, and make disciples of all nations. Church, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are called. Amen. Go. But notice what's interesting here. God makes a way for Isaiah to be forgiven. Isaiah says, whom shall I send? Who, who will go? Isaiah says, here, here am I, send me. And then God goes into this really difficult discourse for the second half of this passage. And you hear things like, Isaiah, as you go, as you preach, nobody's going to listen. As you go, nobody's going to hear you. 
As you go, nobody's going to turn and be saved. Isaiah, go. Church, recognize that as we go, as the followers of Jesus Christ, as the vehicle that God chose to proclaim his gospel, his glory to the ends of the earth, recognize that you will face opposition. You will face difficulty. If Jesus faced it, you will too. Scripture makes that very, very clear. And although I don't know everything that was going on when God said what he did, we do recognize that Isaiah's ministry was unbelievably difficult. Imagine getting that news, Isaiah, go proclaim, but nobody's going to listen to you. Go be bold, but nobody's going to hear you. But go. And then at the end of this passage, Isaiah says, Well, how long? I'm going to go. Nobody's going to listen. How long? And essentially what we get here is God saying, until I say stop. Church, go. Make disciples. Proclaim the glory and the greatness of God to the ends of the earth until Christ comes back to receive his bride, to be with himself. Listen to the hope of this last verse in Isaiah chapter six. After this sort of discourse of nobody's gonna listen, nobody's gonna turn, nobody's gonna respond to the message that you're proclaiming, all of a sudden, very last sentence in Isaiah chapter six. says the holy seed is in its stump. There's so much hope there, church, that as we go, Essentially what was going on here, God was telling Isaiah, nobody's going to listen. Nobody's going to hear you, however recognize Jesus is coming. That's a reference to Jesus. Therefore, Isaiah's work, his labor is not in vain. Why? Because Jesus is coming. Church, as you go, recognize the difficulty of being a believer, a follower of Christ, living in a dead world. However, Go faithfully. Go boldly. Why? Because Jesus has come. Therefore, as you go, recognize you're fighting a fight that's already been won. Recognize that as you go, you can't fail because our God is already victorious. How long do we go? Until he says stop. Until we're with him and the mission is accomplished. Church, because our God is holy, because he's holy, 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 and there's a world out there that is separated from him because of the depravity of their sin. The only hope they have is Christ. Go boldly. Proclaim his, the beauty of his gospel with fervor. Make him known. Why? Because eternity depends on it. And God is deserving of that kind of glory. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for being not just a amazing God. Thank you for being the amazing God. Father, thank you for who you are. Father, I just can't get over the fact that in comparison to you, I am sinfully lost. God, my sin separates me from you. Father, and though I get it, at least intellectually and and theologically, there's still a part of me that struggles with why me? Father, I'm not deserving of your grace. But Father, I'm so grateful. Father, I'm so grateful for Jesus and for his finished work on the cross. God, that should have been my place. God, thank you for your beautiful gospel. And Father, I do pray, as I prayed just a little while ago, that if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know Christ, Father, I plead with you that today would be the day that you would call them from death to life, that you would remove the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. Father, would you reveal to someone the depth of your amazing love for them and their unbelievable need for a Savior. Father, we want that so bad. And Father, for the believer that's here, Father, I pray that, God, your word would be encouraging. Father, I pray that it would be uplifting to them as they recognize the fact that they were bought by a great price, by an amazing Savior. Father, I pray that they would feel the warmth of your embrace, the warmth and the depth of your love. Father, I even pray that God, it's is, is just like myself. There is days that I have taken advantage of your holiness, taken advantage of your grace in the presence of your holiness. Father, I pray that today, through the proclamation of your word, you would bring some to a place of repentance. Father, because we want to be a church, a bride that is presented to their bridegroom as pure and spotless. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that as your word goes forth, it never returns void. God, I love you. But God, I recognize the only reason that I love you is because you love me first. And it's in the mighty, matchless, awesome name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.